Hello and welcome to the Shepherd Walwyn podcast series. My name is Jonathan Brown. Shepherd Walwyn is a campaigning book publisher based in London, England. Our purpose is to uncover and promote new ideas to society's oldest problems. And whilst our specialty is ethical economics, something Anthony Werner, our driving force for over 40 years, has pioneered, we have branched out over the years to other related areas such as the environment and the lives and works of society's change agents. These podcasts promote ideas we're convinced can actually help us build a better society for all of us. So have a listen and be sure to share with your friends if you like them, but also tell us what you think. These are debates we all need to be part of. So without further ado, let's get into the interview. Today's author is Dr. Eddie Billamoria. Eddie is joining us for what will become a series of conversations to celebrate and explore his extraordinary four-volume, 1,200-page magnus opus, Unfolding Consciousness, exploring the living universe and intelligent powers in nature and humans. Eddie was born in India and educated at the universities of London, Sussex and Oxford, and he presents an unusual blend of experience in the fields of science, engineering, art and philosophy. He's worked as a consultant in many industries, including oil and gas, aerospace and construction, and he's been a project manager and head of design for major innovative projects such as the Channel Tunnel, London Underground Systems and other off-store installations. A student of the perennial philosophy for over four decades, he has given courses and lectures extensively around the world. He's organised and chaired several major conferences, and his written work has been published extensively in the fields of science, engineering and the esoteric philosophy. And on top of all of this, he is also an accomplished concert pianist. Unfolding Consciousness is a culmination of a life's work and has already garnered much critical acclaim. In this interview, we discuss Volume 1, the subtitle of which is a panoramic survey, Science Contrasted with the Perennial Philosophy on Consciousness and Man. And this is the first part of a two-part episode. Okay, Eddie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. I'm very honoured to be speaking with you. Well, we're here to, to start the con- well, continue the conversation about your extraordinary work, Unfolding Consciousness, um, which is a, an amazing four-volume work. Um, now, just before we get into it, is there anything you'd like to just to open with, just to give us an overview for the listeners? That would be a good idea, Jonathan, yes. I would say my central purpose in writing those volumes, and it's a purpose that became much clearer as I was proceeding, was to show that the universe, man and all nature, is guided by intelligence at all levels, and the laws of nature are anything but blind and mechanical. They are intelligent powers. And so the the purpose of all this is to show and understand what it really means to be human and to see the human being in relation to the whole of the cosmos, of the universe, in line with the old saying, man is the measure of all things. And that being the case, to demonstrate, it's always to demonstrate, not just to hypothesize, that man, universe, matter are all moving towards conscious, goal-orientated evolution. And finally, if I may very quickly, I would say, if anyone asks me what are the unique features of these volumes, it's to show 
again with evidence that science, religion, philosophy are all subsumed under an integrated and integral wisdom that points to their source and therefore to show the universality of these great teachings known as the mystery teachings which help in great measure to resolve the many conundrums in science on subjects like consciousness, nature, the universe, and that sort of thing. And by science, I mean physical science, natural science, as understood now. So that's a, a very quick few seconds resume of about 20 years of work. That's great. Well, well thanks for coming, Eddie. Um, and listeners, tune in next week. From... <laughs> That's a, that's a fantastic introduction. Your, your book has been described as a, a tour de force on mm -hmm. science and the philosophia perennis. And that's firstly, right. what is the perennial philosophy? Yes, the perennial philosophy we can regard as the common heritage of mankind. It's the common heritage, but not, so to speak, the common property of the masses. And it's really an umbrella term and its teachings are known as the mystery teachings of all ages or the thread doctrine. And why thread? Because it unifies science, religion in, and philosophy into an integral body of wisdom. And the great Albert Schweitzer likened the perennial philosophy to the characteristic of perennialism, to a tree that annually bears the same type of fruit, but never exactly the same fruit, which symbolizes that the universal wisdom is always one in essence, but it must periodically be given new expression and communicated in an updated idiom to suit the epoch in question and the modern epoch, the scientific epoch, of course, is the age we live in. So on that basis, my whole method in developing the perennial philosophy and really everything else in the four volumes is not only to display what the philosophy says, of course, but to provide the evidence behind it and to show how science is slowly catching up with these eternal truths, there is a great saying, science is our best ally, our best ally being the best ally of these eternal truths, which are being discovered and rediscovered through enlightened science. Wow. wow. So and very, uh, if I can just uh, develop that, if you like, uh, a few similes and metaphors for the perennial philosophy. In one sense, you can regard it as an algebraic equation. An algebraic equation is a statement of general generalities, which will fit the scenario in question. So the simplest equation is distance equals speed times time. Any speed, any time, and you get the distance. It doesn't matter where you are. These are just simple metaphors and similes to try and understand. Another very useful one is that 
off a candle. Now, I don't know if you've been to the prehistoric caves in Torquay and Devon, but I, I promise you that even with a guide, with a torch, <laughs> when you're in the middle of the cave, he turns off all the lights. And it is a darkness you have never experienced. Even though you know he's got a torch, he's turned off the lights, panic sets in after about 30 seconds. It's pitch black. Now, I put it to you, if you had even a match, a candle, you would find your way out of that cave if you don't blow it out. So the perennial philosophy provides that light through the darkness, which the great Shakespeare, Francis Bacon, put in Portia's little speech, um, how far the little candle throws its beams, a statement that Beethoven was very fond of. And the last simile is that of the thread, like a necklace thread that strings together all the beads into one organic entity. So those are just a few helpful metaphors, I think, to help understand what the perennial philosophy is in words. And then you, you ask why I encourage readers to reflect on their own experience. Yes. Well, I mean, that's, yeah. that's, that was interesting because that's the, that's the topic of chapter one, right? Mm. I mean, so you talk right. about the, the perennial philosophy, all mm. the ancient wisdom, and you literally go back thousands of years to come forward and weave everything together. Mm -hmm. And yet the first chapter is all about um, who and what am I? Which is what the whole point of existence is all about, because... It's important to examine our own mental and emotional processes, to read the book of life, so to speak, the book of our own life. And the importance is this, that you can read a thousand books and you think that what you read, you know. And it's important to distinguish from hearsay and book knowledge from actually gained experience. And the greatest of teachers have said, yes, you can learn from books and teachers, but ultimately the greatest learning and teaching is from oneself through meditation. To access that all important witness self, to see that our thoughts and desires need not actually dictate our actions. And this is the whole point of examining ourselves, that we can direct our thoughts and actions, which means understanding the director, who are we, which means to experience the observing self, the witness self, so we can detachedly observe our angers, our desire, our depression, and all of that. And that is important before launching into the various teachings, because then it gives it perspective, and we can relate it to experience. Otherwise, 
it's mere bookman knowledge. Mm. Mm. I guess I mean if we, if we think about what our conversation um, just next to your beautiful piano, mm-hmm. just about your experience as an engineer uh, mm-hmm. in life, as well as a you know a lifelong student of um, yeah. of the esoteric teachings, but also the importance that you had of of of, of physically interacting with with the world and and working with people like on the you know the channel tunnel and yes. and other major engineering projects um i guess that in itself is really you applying your knowledge or your ideas into the world right and how you interact with people and how you show up and the importance of that versus someone who can repeat a text but they don't live it they're not kind for example like for me i, I was reading one of the, the one of the recommended readings and um one of the authors said there's two things you need to you need to focus on in life which is to know god and to be kind mm-hmm. and and when i think about it it's actually it's more or less one thing really because for me if you if you have any insight into god then you can't not be kind because that yeah. is the expression of of of, 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 of of the insight that you have and so if someone says they know god and they're unkind then you've really got to question their their deeper insight right that's very well put, Jonathan. Yes, to know God—that rather difficult term, God—to <laughs> know the divine self, the divine consciousness, the ground of our being, everything that makes us what we are—it is impossible to know that and be unkind to any human being or any creature on earth. Yes, mm. as you quite rightly say. Yes. Mm. And 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 I know um, one of the things that um, when you look at the, the, some criticism of some ideas and that are in the in the books is that you do not have an issue with with science and technology. The issue is is when people focus on science and technology to the exclusion of human values. Um, and it's why, as you say in chapter one, is that we're physically wealthier than we've ever been, but many of us feel much poorer. So I wonder if you could just tell us what's your understanding of inner poverty. Yes, most certainly. Most sincerely, I applaud science. And I rarely talk about my personal self, so to speak, in public. But whenever people criticize modern science and modern medicine, the first thing I point out is these two eyes that are looking at you, Jonathan, (laughs) were saved by modern science by modern medicine when I was 14 years old because I had a corneal problem. It was not saved by homeopathy, acupuncture, spiritual science. It was science that saved my eyesight. So dare you criticize science. It has done wonderful things to us. But we have to realize, as the great sage Paul Brunton says, that physical science used wisely will result in the physical release and expression and flowering of humanity. Physical science misuse will result in his downfall. Mm. And you don't have to ask me for examples of weaponry and pollution and all of that. So I love science. But when it's taken to the level that it has now, it results in what I do call inner poverty, which means a starvation of our inner riches, meaning a sense, a loss of our sense of values, what gives our lives meaning and purpose, and our essential self, sense of self, self in capitals. 
And that loss of essential sense of self results in a rather poor compensation, which is an accumulation of money or escapism through drugs, sexual indulgence, time wasting, entertainment, where the individual attempts to fill an inner vacuum with sensory distractions. The two seminal books on this looming problem of excessive reliance on science and technology, one by Carl Jung, Modern Man in Search for Soul, in Search of a Soul, Paul Brunton, The Spiritual Crisis of Modern Man. And I think a good example of the polarity between outward riches and inner poverty are the many modern teenagers glued to their electronic gadgetry, jumping from pillar to post, not knowing what to do with their lives. So also, so also the billionaires and the oligarchs and the power hungry politicians in the world. What would they do with themselves if they were by themselves in a comfortable three star hotel in the countryside? What would they do without their super yachts and their private jets and all the other playthings they have? So to be able to possess things sensibly, but not to be possessed by them is one of the signs of inner riches. To be happy in any circumstance, I don't mean some idiotic thing like being tortured or starved, but to be left with oneself and yet to be content is a sign of inner riches. And far, far be it for me to you know, be boastful, but if I'm by myself, as I often have to be and need to be, I will often play in my mind a great piece of music by Beethoven or Chopin or Liszt or Schubert, which is incredibly uplifting. So inner riches is really what we want to develop. Initially in life, we need outer riches to establish the family and the house and all the rest of it. But then we have to transfer from outer riches, which are important, to the inner riches. The outer riches will fall off. The inner riches will always stay with you. Hmm. Well, you know, there's some interesting research from um, Mihal Csikszentmihalyi, who wrote the book on, on flow states and was also one of the pioneers of positive psychology. Um, along with Marty Seligman. And one of the things that he talked about and from his research is that um, wealth, if you spend your money on things, then it tends to decrease life satisfaction. But mm. if you spend your money on, on enhancing experience, experience, and yes. that tends to that tends to create more happiness and, and especially experience with people you love. Mm. Um, which was the, the real thing to, to spend your money on. But things just create actually more poverty because you realize that your thing isn't as good as the other person's thing. So then you think I have to get another thing that's better than this thing and in order to be happier rather than say, you know what, I'm going to strip everything back and 
and we spoil we spoil endeavors which could be deeply enjoyable and satisfying like for example the game of golf mm. and instead of it being some kind of technological war it's really a game um for yourself and the environment isn't it really which mm. is the essence of what golf is really about mm. um mm. And, in, and you only can access that if you focus on the game and not the equipment. Yes, on the process and not the end end game. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, and on that quick note of experience, uh, I received a, a company award and I was given the choice of do you want something, you know, from PC world or whatever, or, or an experience. I chose a microlight flight. Wow. And I'm looking forward to it. So we better get some podcasts before my microlight flight. <laughs> I've done a lot of gliding. Uh, uh, I I got a bronze C uh, for fifty solos and uh, you know other attainments. Yeah. And uh, I just do love flying, and that's the experience. Yes. Yes. Wow! Oh, fantastic. Uh, so Eddie, your book is is split up into the first book is is broadly split up into two parts. Yes. Look first of all at the the challenges and problems within mm. science, mm. but what you then look at is actually how what what's emerging in the scientific field mm. that could actually link to the perennial philosophy and yes. act as a bridge. Yeah. And then you then look at the the an introduction to the mystery teachings of all mm. ages. Um, and a new continent of thought. Mm. So I just mm. wondered if you wanted to take the, the conversation in, in two parts, really. And yes. we start with um, the wonder and problem with, with current the current science yes. and also what you describe as scientism. Mm. Um, and so if we if we look at that, so chapter two, when we look at that, it, it presents the latest claims about the nature of mind and consciousness from mm. science. Um, and so firstly, what is the, the mind-brain thought problem and why do Nobel scientists disagree? At the very least, Jonathan, the disagreements show that the problem is far from settled. And the disagreements are to do with the diametrically opposed views of those who maintain that thought is generated or produced by the brain. For example, Nobel scientist Francis Crick and his school. And diametrically opposed from um, Gerald Edelman, another Nobel scientist, who argues that to reduce our entire experience, our joy, our sorrow, our feelings of falling in love, our aspirations, our depressions, to reduce all of that merely to neuronal oscillations across the neocortex uh, between 40 and 60 hertz, in Francis Crick's book, that's simply silly. So it is a failure to distinguish between an active principle from its vehicle of expression. No one says the brain is not involved, but how is it involved? And that I deal with in chapter six, when we come on to William James and that. So reductionism ceases to be a valuable technique in science and it becomes an ideology upheld by faith rather than reason. And reason dictates that the sum, uh, that the combination and the whole is always greater than the sum of its parts. 
So this is the soft problem of consciousness, the soft problem being reductive physicalism, so to speak. The soft problem, the brain generates consciousness. And the hard problem, first um, formulated by David Chalmers, the Australian physicist or neuroscientist in those terms, that there is more to it than the brain just generating consciousness. You get into some of the other things. So, for example, so I'm sure a lot of listeners would, would be thinking, well, where my thoughts are generated by, if my thoughts are not generated by my brain, then, then where do they mm. come from? Mm. Um, did you want to wait until the la later conversation? Um... If you like. Okay. Or, um, yeah. Um, so we've got, we've got that. And so there's, there's other things that you, um, that you talk about in chapter one, really, which is, mm -hmm. which is looking at natural selection. Um, yeah. And is it, the, is it the sole evolutionary mm -hmm. process, for mm -hmm. example? Um, and the question that you ask is, do genes alone explain yeah. genius? Sure. Right. Natural selection is part of the process. And regarding genes, no more than individual components of a car can explain how the car as an entity operates or how it uh, or how the components are put together and fit together. So understanding the nuts and bolts of the mechanism provides no understanding of how the mechanic put it together, and certainly not who designed the mechanism, and least of all, the driver of the mechanism. So what is a gene? It's composed of DNA or RNA and forming part of a chromosome. As a unit of heredity, genes certainly determine our physical characteristic, yes, but in the final analysis, a gene is merely a chemical. Yeah, a gene in Western medical science is merely a chemical. Can all life be reduced to chemistry? And if it is, is genius merely the interaction of chemicals? Mm. So I'm just getting a, a sense here that when you talk mm. about, um, so sometimes, for example, it could be, as we'll get into, um, that my brain could generate thoughts. Um, and, and, and likewise, my genes could, in, in, could impact my development. But as, with, as we're finding with, with genes and genetics, is that my genes can be stimulated and triggered by what happens in my environment, which is now the field of epigenetics. Exactly so. So, that, so it's that interaction that, yes. that isn't, isn't addressed in the reductive approach to science, which is if I can take something apart, it means that I understand the whole rather than I've just mm -hmm. taken it apart. What we really need to be asking the so-called scientists or the, the mechanic that can take an engine apart is, okay, okay, sport, now put it back together and make right. it run better. Yes. The reductive approach has tremendous uses and it's invaluable. And not only in science, in any endeavor, mm. if you're learning a piece of difficult music, you break it down into chunks. Yeah. You break each bar. I mean, I've done that all my life. <laughs> but then you've got to put the bars together mm. and we forget this. And I think Ilya Prigogine, the great Nobel a scientist who uh, developed non-equilibrium thermodynamics said, you know, we've become so expert at putting things, breaking things apart, we forget to put them together again. Mm. So 
I'm constantly emphasizing, Jonathan, that every approach is invaluable in its context. But when it becomes the driving force at the expense of everything else, then it turns into an ideology and loses, it loses the plot, so to speak. Mm. Yeah. And and the other thing that you that you also you stress in the thing is that there's a great deal of contradictory evidence yes. in lots of areas around yes. science, and yet it's often ignored because it doesn't fit the prevailing view. No, it doesn't. And that's to do with the politics of knowledge, which is something that we are addressing a lot in the scientific and medical network. The politics of knowledge, the fear of looking foolish amongst our peers for stepping out of line, loss of grant and position. Uh, you mentioned Ian McGilchrist uh, in the forward to the Galileo Commission of the scientific medical network, he states that science is now practiced almost like an industry, factory fashion. And any scientist who steps out of line will find his career on the rack. Mm. And even an established scientist has a lot to lose if he steps out of line let alone the young scientist who's just embarking on his career. Hmm. But um, regarding contradictory evidence, uh, slightly more sort of philosophically, the important point to ask always is through which eyes am I looking? Through which eyes are we looking? Let's think of St. Paul. And Plotinus, of course, said the same thing, of course, that for they that are after the flesh, do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit do mind the things of the spirit. And quickly, I can give you two examples of that. The great Nobel scientist, Stephen Weinberg, who says in his book, Dreams of Final Theory, gone are the days when we can celebrate the glory of the heavens and look at the stars and see divinity. We can't celebrate divinity in the stars with David as we used to, because science now tells us that the stars are really glowing spheres of gas where the gravitational collapse of matter is held in equilibrium by the heat, the upthrust, the heat generated by thermonuclear processes in the core of the star. So the star tells you no more about divinity than the sticks and the stones on the ground around you. Well, that's true at the physical level. That's not untrue, but it's looking through one set of eyes. Now let's look through another set of eyes. When Galileo invited Monteverdi to look through his telescope, of course, Monteverdi saw going gas, but he saw more. He was moved to write his beautiful work, The Vespers, the sacred work. So Monteverdi was looking through spiritual eyes as well as his physical eyes. So the differences between the various scientific expert opinions is not only to do with fear, 
power position, not wanting to look foolish, but also very much to do with through which eyes are they looking. Mm. Mm. And I think that leads us very beautifully into the, there's a quote you have from David Lorimer, if, I'm, yes. if it's okay for me to read it. Mm. Um, Scientists do not always recognize that science is based on a number of key philosophical assumptions yeah. that underpin, define, and even restrict the scope of its thinking. When mm. scientists define science in exclusively mechanistic and materialistic terms mm. and refuse to acknowledge the validity of other ways of knowing, mm. they transform it into a dogmatic ideology of scientism. Yes. And I think when you look at that, of course, you know, so in a sense that, it's actually a deeper spiritual truth to say that sticks and stones are as beautiful as as the stars. And, and I know some of the recent pictures coming out of the, the very latest telescope, which is utterly yes. remarkable in its, it in its mm. imagery. Mm. And there is that. But there's also there's a there's a wonder that as a gardener, of course, I have a passion flower in my in my garden. Um, and I think the flowers are the most outrageous it's just the most outrageous showing off of nature that nature can produce something so structured. Um, yes. And yet at another level, a blade of grass is, is an equal miracle in terms of, you know, the creative force behind it. And it's just yes. another expression yes. of a, of a beautiful thing. It's not as, it doesn't look as beautiful by our definition, mm. but it's still the most extraordinary thing. And it's still something that after all these years that we were not able to create in a laboratory mm. ourselves. Mm. We can take mm. a seed and adapt it and change it and modify it, but we're not able to create a seed on its own. Exactly so, Jonathan. We can analyze the chemicals to the nth degree, the same with an, an amoeba. But why can't we put those chemicals together in the same proportion and create a bla blade of grass or an amoeba? Mm. Yes. Yeah, and, and I just think that, and having that level of awe at mm. the the utter majesty, however great my garden is, mm. I'm still I'm still a servant to a creative force that I cannot even approach. Yes, in yes. terms of wonder and mm. and power, even a, you know a simple bamboo a bamboo plant, which my garden's full of bamboo, mm. um, you just can't get anywhere close to it. I mean, and and so in that sense, other than other than a quiet worship or you know a very deep appreciation then i should just carry on digging you know and, and yeah. helping the plants find the environment that's best for them um so in this um with this as you move on with david Lorimer, you look at the, mm -hmm. the whole area around materialism and mm -hmm. physicalism mm -hmm. i just wonder if you'd like to give us a quick introduction to to what they are yes let's sweep together materialism physicalism and quantitative qualitative and <clears throat> soft and hard problem because it's all <clears throat> sorry part and parcel of the same issue part of the mainstream scientific paradigm or the worldview which is essentially mechanistic the the world view that as the universe is essentially a machine so human beings are machines now how has this come about Schrodinger, one of the greatest scientists, in my opinion, after Newton and Einstein, of course, and a great mystic as well, explained it very succinctly that in the 19th century, there was an explosion of scientific thought and discovery. Wonderful. It developed, uh, it resulted in the development of material, 
there was, as a result of scientific discovery, material development. But then that material development morphed into an attitude of materialism that because we create machines and ever better and more powerful machines, we are machines. So this mechanistic belief about life is a legacy of the 19th century explosion in science, and it is nothing more than a belief. So what is materialism, physicalism? Let's just deal with materialism and physicalism. Physicalism is the modern scientific word exclusively based on the assumption of classical physics that matter is the fundamental and only kind of substance in nature, the fundamental, and that the emergence of life and all phenomena, including mental phenomena and consciousness, are ultimately the result of matter acting upon matter according to the immutable laws of physical physics and chemistry. Physicalism is a more sophisticated identification with the most basic substance that exists, but it has a greater meaning than matter because physicalism is also the belief and it is no more than an unsubstantiated belief that physical nature is all that exists and all things supernatural therefore do not exist. And the word physicalism came into being as a result of further discoveries in science about the interconnection between matter and energy, about non-locality in quantum physics. But it still is a belief that the primary substance of the universe is matter, is physical matter. Hmm. Well, I mean, I guess it, on, a, on one level, it's true, right? Oh, we can we can act, we can act as if it is true. Hmm. Um, I'm guessing that when you were, you know, helping to build the Channel Tunnel, you weren't focusing on the non-locality of no um, <laughs> the non-locality of, of, of properties or atoms or whatever. It, it's like you focused on the physical, um, and so yes. in that sense. But there's but the other thing. I'm just thinking back to what you said about the. The 19th century and that, that the, the explosion in technology around the creation or the extraction of, of material is that links us back to what you said about chapter one which is which is yes we need to have a level of, of of physical or material prosperity or sufficiency but it also needed to be contextualized in the what for why do we want that and why do we need that it's like, well, actually so that we can we can cultivate inner um, wisdom and and be free to do that Yes. So your question embraces a, a few things. Firstly, the distinction between primary qualities and secondary qualities. But since you mentioned the Channel Tunnel, at my fan museum launch, uh, Professor Bernard Carr mentioned that the Channel Tunnel, in one sense, has linked the two consciousnesses of England and France by virtue of that connection. But let's think of an example. Um, we have to deal with our mental models. Let's think of this example. I make it a point every day to go walking, jogging, running around my local lake, which is very fortunate and very beautiful. I'm very lucky to have it. And there is a playground there. And I love to watch the children enjoying themselves. 
at that age, you see nothing but pure joy and pure fun. Before all the problems of growing up and becoming a teenager set in, you see pure joy. Now, let's assume as an example, a little child goes down on a slide and knocks a tooth out. So, so the slide manufacturer obviously designed the slide wrongly, a too steep an angle. So to redesign the slide, he has to deal with pure physics. The, the translation or transformation of potential energy to kinetic energy. The child on the slide can be a mass, it can be a stone, it could be anything. It's mass coming down a slide. That's all. Neglecting air friction and that sort of thing. So to redesign his slide, kinematics, physics. Now, say the child knocks, knocks his, her tooth out and goes to the dentist. Now the dentist will obviously look at the child as a human being, but for his job, the tooth is an object. It is a physical object. So his mental moral as a dentist is I'm dealing with a physical object according to the laws of physics and chemistry and biology. The tooth is an object, not the child. The slide manufacturer is very interested in the weight of the child coming down. I mean, a hunking grade 10 foot man is not gonna be part of his problem. A child weighing, I don't know, three stone, 42 pounds or whatever is very much his problem. The dentist isn't gonna say, what's your weight? Are you three stone? He's not concerned, he's concerned about the tooth. Now say the child then grows up to be a teenager and has psych ecological problems go to the psychiatrist will the psychiatrist say what's your weight are you three stone you look nine stone now well that's a nice weight for a lady no he's not interested he is interested in your internal geography your internal soul quality what's driving you as a person so the mental model of the physicist if it's confused with the mental model of the psychiatrist, then you're going to have problems. If the psychiatrist is going to say, let's apply the laws of physics and chemistry to see what's going on in your soul, you know, he's just going to be talking nonsense. But this is what's happening, trying to reduce the soul or explain it away in terms of physics or chemistry. And if that doesn't apply, it's non-existent. So, we have to use our mental models. So going back to David Lorimer's quote, it's pure good science for the slide manufacturer to redesign his slide. He'd be using scientism if he used the same principles as a psychiatrist to understand mm. the soul of that teenage girl. Yeah. That's a bit of a arbitrary example but i, hope well, I mean I, but, and as, I, as i say i think it's also it's a wonderful example of <clears throat> the power of 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 the principles at one level mm. so you're looking at you're looking at it's a physics problem and it's equations and everything mm. else but if you look at the designer of the playground yes how can i maximize the enjoyment for the child then i would look at the interactions between the different um, rides and also the other thing that's also important as a parent is the positioning of benches and, and access yes. for parents mm. so that they can also ensure that the child is safe and 
Um, and if they do fall over and, and knock a tooth out, you can be there in a, in a fast process. And likewise, I had a dentist when I was a kid mm. who seemed to, who I recall, who only cared about the objects in my mouth and gave no thought to me. And I, we used to be absolutely terrified <laughs> of going to the dentist because we really were just, you know, things to be manipulated in our mouths. Um, and yet the later dentists that we now have takes into account an element of the psychologist and makes the environment and made the environment much more friendly for our children um even play cartoons in the waiting room and things like that so there's that wonderful as a whole human being isn't it and and it's that and it's that intricative process that you talk about which uses science and uses all the other elements adjacent fields of wisdom and insight in order to think well it's human first and that's really what we're looking at is enhancing the human experience and that's yes. really what you're looking at for the great designer of a fantastic playground or mm. um, and one that also, I guess, you know, looking at the playground is one that, that it becomes progressively more difficult so that older children can still enjoy it. So you've mm. got the you've got siblings and, and everyone else just taking making the most of the playground. Mm-hmm. And uh, in one of the chapters, I again celebrate science and say we should fall on our knees and thank science for anesthetics when we go to the dentist and who would like to have surgery without being <laughs> made unconscious and then, i mean and you, you're talking in the in your book as well about goethe and and goodwin mm-hmm. and other mm-hmm. other scientists right. who take a more systemic or holistic view of yes of science yes in in very broad terms uh, goethe brian goodwin Luigi Fontape, who coined the word um, syntropy, they take a holistic view. They regard nature as a living being rather than a, a detached object, which links in very well to the latest or the enlightened um, quantum physics, especially uh, John Wheeler uh, of Princeton University whose uh, famous quote was, um, or paraphrasing it, that we should not look at nature in a detached way behind a thick glass wall, but participate in her living processes. So the two approaches are the scientific one, small less, not to be disregarded, of looking at nature as a detached observer, and on the other hand, like Leonardo and the uh, modern scientists, looking at nature as a living being and therefore participating in her living processes. So as a rather silly example, if I want to understand my neighbor, I can do it in two ways. If I drag him in, put him on my kitchen table and cut him up into bits and pieces, I can find uh, how much he weighs and all the various dimensions. But in order to know him, I've got to interact with him. So we can find out the structure of a butterfly's wings by unfortunately killing it and dissecting it. But we will not understand how a butterfly flies unless we can, in our minds, be with one with the butterfly and participate in its joy of flight. Yeah. 
Do you know, and there was a, there was a quote, so we had a, was a wonderful author that, as part of the Shepard Walwyn um, group of, of authors um, who wrote a book about sexual selection. And we talked about. Um, oh, yes. I know. <laughs> and and you, you talked about Goodwin. Mm. Um, and he challenged the exclusive, exclusively neo-Darwinist reductionism, which exactly. saw organisms simply as carriers of selfish genes. Mm. And instead, Goodwin emphasised the importance of their self-organising power, <coughs> complexity and creativity. Mm. And having grasped the whole organism is always greater than the sum of its individual components. Mm. Um, and I, I, I remember the, the, you know, the conversations that year with, you know, with, with evolution biologists about the peacock the peacock's tail mm, and it yeah. was it was basically a way of attracting a mate yeah um, and yet i was looking at that i was doing the research for this conversation and i was just mm. i was watching a video of a peacock open its tail um and the idea the <laughs> idea that a peacock would go to all that trouble just to excuse to me. <laughs> <just be> crudely <clears throat> the idea it'd go to that trouble to have a shag um, yeah. it's just yeah. it's so ridiculous it, it was just it looks to me like it was if let's just say that's just a thought experiment mm. god our universal intelligence says to all the all the beings and entities in the world just if we want i want this place to be an inspiration to everyone who comes i want to create bewilderment or mm. excitement and just what the hell is thatness mm. if you look at a peacock's tail or a passion flower or something else mm. like that is that you look at it and you just think what the hell is that about what kind of majesty and as an idea, just it just looks to me like evolution or energy or consciousness was showing off and just say, look, guys, take a look at this. If ever you feel down, if ever you feel disconnected from the world, just look at the peacock opening its tail and realize there is so much more to this than, you know, just wanting to find a mate or. Yes. You know, and, and peacocks, I believe, do open their tails when there's no mate around. 100 percent. Yeah. It's celebrating the beauty of being a peacock. Now, you mentioned the peacock. Interestingly, one of the issues in evolution is why and how did the giraffe have such a long neck? <clears throat> well, without going into the ins and outs of it, in order for that to happen, there has to be a, a whole orchestration. It's all very well to say so you can eat the leaves on a higher tree, but why does it choose a higher tree? But also, for the giraffe to have that long neck, a lot of things have got to come together as an orchestra. The head has got to be much lighter because on the end of a long cantilever mm. neck, you know, a heavy head is going to create muscular problems. The heart has got to increase its pumping to send the blood to the top. Also, the valving in the neck has got to adjust. So when the giraffe puts his neck down, you know, all the food doesn't go tumbling out. But these things don't happen sequentially. They come together as an orchestrated intelligence. Mm. And it's not just because he wanted to get leaves on top. Well, it's just, um, just too much work. I mean, why would you do that? Unless it's, again, <laughs> it's just God showing off. <laughs> yeah, it is. Or act as it's just inspiration. For me, that that's you know, and I know it's you know, you can look at the reductionist approach as like, oh, it does this and this, but you just what it takes away is the sheer majesty yes. and and befuddlement that that the extraordinary creature called that we call a giraffe can stimulate mm. if you allow yourself just to look at it, to be and, one with it, yes. isn't it? And and to admire the the utter magnificence of that mm. creature. Mm. Mm. Um, 
and like you say, yes, I mean, so the, the engineering problems that entity solve yes. in order to be like that, <laughs> yeah. um, or the maintenance that a peacock has to go to mm. in order to maintain a tail for its own mm. enjoyment or for an mm. occasional, you know, mm. transference of genetic mm. material. Mm. Um, why bother? Just because, you know, for, so that there's easier ways of solving those problems, right? And, and nature is a wonderfully efficient mechanism for creating exquisite solutions that are wonderfully elegant and simple. And that is not a simple solution. So there has to be something else to it, in my opinion. But yeah. anyway, just uh, fascinating stuff. But very um, quickly, um, the great Isaac Newton, who is so wrongly accused of um, advocating the clockwork universe, which is absolute <coughs> nonsense. I Let me just quote, if I can remember the, his wonderful saying. He says, thus this earth resembles a great animal, a great animal, and it draws its ethereal breath for its daily refreshment and vital ferment and transpires again with gross exhalations. So Newton's really talking about the earth as a living Gaia. Yes, yes. And, and my understanding of, of the whole thing about Newton and the clock is that he was saying that, well, it is a Gaia. It is a one. It's so much more complicated than I can handle. So let's pretend that it's a clock, and we'll just work on some problems that we can handle. Because on the, the bigger, mechanical side, yes, the bigger yes. problems we can't solve. So I can reduce it to an extent, mm. but let's recognize that this is a, you know, this is magnificence. And given that he was actually primarily primarily an alchemist, um, mm, exactly and also. So. The other thing that I remember about when you talk about Newton is the way in which he subjected himself to experiments. Yes. Um, the idea that, you know, his eye experiments of, I mean, how a man could do that to himself are just <laughs> utterly staggering of, you mm. know, of squashing his own eyeball with a, mm. what it's essentially with a lollipop stick, wasn't it? It wasn't a lollipop stick, yeah. but it, that's what, what in modern bumpkin. terms. Your bumpkin, and, knitting needle. Yes. And so in that sense, it's like, okay, so, so if you're willing to do that for science, then mm. you know and it's and it also as well and create that that connection mm. of yeah. between this magical matter of how the universe produces such extraordinary things that we can't even get close to yeah. and, um but his laws were a mathematical formulation of the mechanism he didn't say it was a mechanism it was a mathematical formulation yeah now you talk in mm -hmm. in in your book really about the about the idea of to it and going back to this idea of of where does thought come from and and what is the brain and, and the mm. mind and mm. um and you talk about the different types of interaction that the brain can have of a if i, if I get it right of a, as a as a radio receiver as a as a transceiver transducer, as, yeah. i just wondered if you could take us through that idea because i was really taken with that as a um, as a and again just the idea that that you're not saying no to any idea in science, whether it's Francis Crick's idea or mm -hmm. anything else. Mm -hmm. It's just that there's a bigger set of ideas yeah. that inter that integrate the ideas at the lower levels um, of of my my brain having a thought mm -hmm. or me having a thought mm -hmm. in my brain. It's just that there's far more to it than that. Yes, I think one of the most wonderful insights comes from William James, who. Uh, delivered the i think if i'm not mistaken the great edinburgh lectures on mental science or was that thomas child but anyway william james known as the father of american psychology and he in his paper 
entitled Human Immortality, note the words human immortality, questions what he calls the popular and conventional view that thought is a function of the brain. And he says, yes, thought is a function of the brain, but what do we mean by a function of the brain? There are three kinds of functions. Productive function. Productive function as steam is produced by a kettle. A hydroelectric effect turns the turbines round and produces electricity. That's productive. Another function is not productive, but permissive or releasing. And William James gives the example of the crossbow releases the arrow. The crossbow does not produce the arrow. And the third one, most important, is transmissive, the filtering one. Now, dealing with the permissive, the releasing, counterintuitively, it has been shown quite clinically on the clinical studies that high levels of creativity are to do with a lowering of the brain threshold, a lowering of the brain state. Hence, providing that permissive function for creativity to flow through, so to speak. The transmissive is the most important, where William James quotes from that great poet Shelley, that life like a dome of many colored glass stains the white radiance of eternity. Mm. So our thoughts color like colored glass, and glass has a refractive index, it bends the light and splits it up into other colors. So our brains, so to speak, act as a refractive index. So the more we can decolor the colored glass and make it transparent, the more the white radiance of life will be allowed to flow through without being distorted and refracted. Mm. So very simply, the brain acts as a transducer of thought in the same way as your radio receiver, your television receiver, transduces the invisible signals from the broadcasting station to something in space and time that's visible that you can see. So the tiger in your television is not in your room, thank goodness, <laughs> he's somewhere else. But the brain transduces those signals in that way. But some memorable brain studies have again shown that the old idea that you have memory banks like the hard disk computer is just not so because by um, cutting the brain in half, uh, hopefully not humans, but it's been shown that memory still subsists. So this brings in the whole idea that Rupert Sheldrake deals with so um, eloquently from a scientific standpoint of the extended mind 
that mind and mentality are everywhere. And we tune in to it rather than generate thought. Well, do you know, it, that, what, the, what you're talking about, I, was, I did a study of, of genius and, um, and, and until, I mean, I guess the, the 19th, late 19th, early 20th century, mm. genius happened to us. We, we mm. weren't genius. Mm. So, so you would have, so the genius would pass through you and it mm. would be from, I mean, the belief system was that it was God that was giving you the ideas. And so the great composers are, so many of them would say that this isn't, this wasn't my music. This was music that's come through me. I'm the and, channel. Yes. And so in that sense, the energy or the ideas were in the air. And if mm. you look at some of the research also more recently in technology mm. is how ideas seem to be seem to come into people in different parts of the world. But they have the same idea. It's as if the idea is present and then that person brings it. Down. Well said. Well said. It's as though the idea were like a rain cloud. And. People with prepared minds can extend their antenna and bring it down. The finest example in mathematics is the calculus that was independently conceived by Newton and Leibniz, uh, even though that resulted in a great big argy-bargy about who came first. But in music, when an idea is pregnant, prepared minds, and that's so important, prepared minds, Minds, people who are thinking about these things will tune into it and extend their antenna and bring it down. Mm. Which is why, as you quite rightly said, Jonathan, um, breakthroughs don't always happen individually, but various people uh, um, get it in groups, mm. or in very small groups, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating. Um, so just to um, just to see where we're at now, we've been looking at the the benefits and the and the constraints of of modern scientism and mm. of science, um, and now what we're working towards is an integration of, yes. of of the the scientific thinking on on one level, and then ensuring that any insights at an individual or molecular or a reductive part level mm-hmm. of an analysis. It can only be truly appreciated if we then indulge in synthesis of bringing everything back together true, again. True. Um, and yeah. that's really where we're moving towards now, the, the mystery teachings. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also, there's, um, so we've got there's something around the, the thoughts changing the physical structure and the functioning of our brains um, and appreciating a wider viewpoint. I think we've, we've mostly addressed that. Is there anything more you want to say on that area? Um, very Briefly, Peter Fenwick, uh, the consultant um, emeritus at the Maudsley and the former president of the Scientific Medical Network and a world-respected authority on near-death experiences, he has told us quite often that meditation has been known to increase the telomeres, which are the outgrowths on the chromosomes and that increase in the telomeres is an indication of longevity so when we grow old apparently those telomeres shrink but meditation shows so that's one instance another paper just just on that eddie so Mm -hmm. a telomere just for the listeners 
it's as if it's as if if you if you think about the shoelaces that you've got on your, yeah, on your shoe, and it's got the plastic coating <laughs> telomere is is kind of like that tip and as we get as we age or mm. as we experience um things and the more traumatic or challenging that experience mm. the faster the fraying so the more mm. time we're tying those laces i guess um that would be the, the stressor and what you're saying is is with meditation and that that whole that you know the, the connecting with a, something bigger than yourself which i think is the essence of meditation yeah. is that you're able to repair your own body at that at that at the genetic level yes that's uh, the shoelace analogy is very useful and very apposite i think yeah and the other uh, clinical study um, there is now impressive scientific evidence that certain individuals can radiate light during deep meditative processes and states and that light is perceived not only by others but also it's demonstrated through quantitative data of neural correlates during such an induced light experience so this again relates to changing and affecting the brain structure and chemistry that one can consciously do so it's not a one way and also experiments uh, in cooperation with the dalai lama have shown the effects of meditation on the brain and done by american neuroscientists i think richard davidson is his name yes showing functional changes and that's from at wisconsin yeah. isn't he um yeah, at wisconsin yes that's right mm. great uh, so yeah. we've been looking at that looking at those things we're looking at these things da, da, da. Mm -hmm. goodness me just so many things so so you're talking about the the light and we're moving through the the books now and you're talking about the benefits of of um of meditation and also just that um you talk about the correct states of mind mm. um and just and i guess really just the importance of what, what you're saying this integration of science and um and the mystery teachings Mm -hmm. of that actually we, we can be so much more intelligent if we open ourselves up to if we cease mm -hmm. to see ourselves as as mm -hmm. individual and separate and being yeah. part of something bigger than ourselves mm -hmm. there's resources such as great ideas and, and energy available to us if mm -hmm. we're able to if we're simply willing to open ourselves up to it is that mm -hmm. right yeah absolutely yes brilliant so i think now am i right we've moved through the 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 strengths and challenges and constraints mm -hmm. of the current scientific view but also you've been talking about the the way in which science through the quantum um approach and also the latest insights in science are showing that this reductive view that's dominated science for the last 80 100 years or so is now stepping dropping away to reveal a, a much more integrated view yeah and the warnings from great scientists of course, the, the mystics and sages have ever warned, but it's very important and comforting uh, to see the warnings from enlightened scientists like Einstein and Bertrand Russell on placing the emphasis on being the human being first and foremost. The Russell-Einstein manifesto is what I'm thinking of, of course. Remember your humanity and forget the rest. Because if you remember your humanity, the way lies open to a new paradise. If you forget your humanity and think of only your technology and science, you run the risk of universal annihilation. Thank you for watching this video. To explore these ideas further, be sure to visit shepherdwalwin.com and join our mailing list for news and special offers. 
Check out our authors and buy the books to learn more. And you can also find us on social media. Links are in the description box. So please like the video and subscribe to our YouTube channel. It's surprisingly helpful in getting our ideas out. So until next time, keep reading.